This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles, with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Dr. Holmes, distinguished faculty, students, the saints of Metro Bible greet you. And I am especially delighted to be here with you today to exposit and be fed by the Word of God, and I, uh, that means me as much as you. I really enjoy uh, the passion with which BMA Seminary desires to preach expositionally, taking the main theme of the text and making it the main theme of the sermon, contemporized and delivered with an unction for change. Any other way, you get way too much preacher and not nearly enough word. So, excited today to exposit 1 Samuel chapter 16, and if you have your copy of the Word of God, please turn there. We are going to cover what Dr. Holmes read, verses 1 through 13, and if I could, I want to set us in context and in time a little bit. We're preaching through the book of 1 Samuel at Metro Bible in Southlake, and uh, it has been amazingly theological to us. What we entered and thought, well, this will be a good Good narrative, we know all scripture is profitable for teaching, for training, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, but yet every pericope has taken us to a crossroads where we either need to hold fast to the character of God or we have a tendency to try to reshape him into our image. And uh, we saw that especially, as I set us in context with chapter 15, if you remember what that text is about... Saul is commanded to go and finish the job with the Amalekites. You remember that? Not just go and defeat them, but to go and kill everything. Everything was under the ban. And of course, we saw in that text, chapter 15, we saw partial obedience. And partial obedience, according to God, is what? Disobedience. Amen. Yeah. Oh, but I did obey. But I saved the best of the fatlings to sacrifice. I did obey, but I, but I saved King Agag. And of course, Samuel has to finish the job and hacks Agag to pieces. On that day, Saul was effectively fired. Though his last day would not come for some time, he was done. And as this text opens, we start to see the fall of Saul and the rise of David. It's not going to be a public affair. In fact, there's not even going to be an interview. This fellow is already chosen. The next king is a man after God's own heart. And he's not anyone that would be on anyone's short list. Headhunters would not have had this young man in his file, but it was a man after God's own heart, sovereignly chosen by him to shepherd his people Israel. If you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to do so, two points will divide our time. Number one, obeying God's 
choice for a king. And number two, seeing God's choice for a king. If you want a good theme or a timeless truth, it is God sees not as man sees, but rather looks at the heart. Now in verse 1, just to point out a couple things here, we see this, uh, this verb, have selected. Dale Ralph Davis tells us that this is used nine times in the text in various fashion, sometimes for provide, not chosen, but it has the sense, simply put, that God chooses for himself. So you can already see the theological themes of God's elective choice in fulfilling his promises. It opens with, Samuel, how long are you going to cry over Saul? Quit grieving. Pack your bags. Go to Bethlehem, for I have chosen a man for myself. Now, we need to pause right there because there's something right and even noble with Samuel grieving over Saul, right? I mean, Saul's a huge disappointment. Samuel has poured his entire life and ministry into this man. He's mentored him. He's been a good friend. Uh, Samuel has been the, the captain of the relay team between the judges and the monarchy. And as he nears the end of, end of his life, he feels that his star runner has dropped the baton. It's not unlike... Christ crying over Jerusalem. Or the way Paul says, Demas, having loved this present world, has what? He's left me. And so there is some rightness to this crying. And yet, he's called to dry his tears and go. Effectively, Yahweh is saying, there is no plan B. That I gave them who they wanted. Tall Saul. They wanted someone to fight their battles for them. They got tired of being embarrassed as the rest of the world looked at them. Oh, so you're an Israelite. That's great. Where's your king? Well, you can't see him. Well, who fights your battles for us? Uh, Yahweh. Well, where are your gods? Well, you can't see him either. There's this sense in which they got tired of being mocked by the Philistines, by the Amalekites, by the Ammonites, by the Amorites. They just got tired of looking stupid. And so they cry out to, to Samuel for a king. And then they give their real reason. We want someone we can see to fight all ba- our battles for us. We want someone who will go out and, and do the dirty work. We don't want to have to trust. And so that's where we're at. Fear of man had always trumped fear of God. But now Samuel is called to get over it. We've got bigger fish to fry. Can you imagine if Samuel didn't delight in obedience? What we have here, and this is not the main point of the text, but we have to realize that Samuel is rightly grieving, and yet when he is called to dry his tears and go do a job, he delightfully submits. He doesn't whine about it. He doesn't complain about it. He doesn't become a prophet, Eeyore. All right, I'll do this, but it's going to be really, really hard. Yahweh, can't we just rethink this thing? I mean, Saul's bad, but maybe a a five-year deferred adjudication. Can, Can we just put him on probation for a little bit? No. He dries his tears. He packs an extra robe or two in his backpack, and he heads out to Bethlehem. He obeys by simply putting one foot in front of the other. Look at verse 4 there. 
Simply understated, Samuel did what the Lord said. To me, that would be the greatest epitaph put on any tombstone. Can you imagine that? Your seminary president, Dr. Charlie Holmes, he did what the Lord said. Nothing else would need to mark our lives. That's Samuel there. He didn't delay. He didn't ask for a mental health day or send someone in his stead. He went to Bethlehem. And as he shows up at the welcome to Bethlehem sign, the elders are there and they're nervous. You see, this is not on his regular preaching route. And so there's a reason he's here and they're hoping that there's not sin in the camp. I don't know exactly why they're fearful, but as we look at this second point, seeing God's choice for a king, we see they're scared. One might say, well, they've heard of the rift between Saul and Samuel. They've they've heard about, surely they know about Saul's anger management issues, right? Or, or, Or maybe, maybe they've heard about what Samuel can do with the sword. I mean, this old guy's tough. Whatever it is, do you, do you come in peace? Yes, I come in peace. Why are you here? Well, I'm here to sacrifice. You elders may come along and there's another family I want to join us. Well, who? His name is Jesse. Well, we know Jesse. Go get him. In fact, let's go to him. And he shows up. Now, pause here real quickly. We know Jesse. But if you're reading this for the first time, there's immediate connections made, right? In fact, imagine your kids who are starting to connect the dots around Christmas time when they're reading Matthew chapter 1 and they see that Jesse was the son of Obed, okay? Obed was the son of Boaz. Hold on, Boaz married a Gentile woman named Ruth. Boaz was the son of Salmon who married a Gentile woman named Rahab whose last name used to be the harlot. Okay? And, and, and what are the connections you're starting to make here as you start to see this, this scarlet thread through the Old Testament to the New? That this ruddy young fellow who's about to be anointed king has a scandalous family tree, doesn't he? A scandalous family tree with a lot of Gentile blood running through his veins. You think God is giving us a picture? of what his Messiah is going to do, where he's going to come from, and what he's going to join together? Well, that's for free. Samuel arrives, and Jesse puts his oldest boy before him. Verse 6, when they entered, he looked at uh, his oldest boy, Eliab. He said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, right now, you've got to think, this is Saul, deja vu, part 2, Okay? From the head and shoulders above, he's the tallest. And Samuel's thinking in his mind, he says, it's going to be a short trip. Surely this guy's it. And we would do the same, right? I mean, he doesn't say here, but, you know, he looked the part. I imagine him 25 years old, six foot three, 240 pounds, tan, captain in the Israeli Defense Forces, Bethlehem Division. He's got some scars from battles under his belt there. He must be the guy. And immediately, what does Yahweh say? No. No. He's not the guy. Verse 7. Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have 
rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And you're going to see, starting in this chapter all the way through David and Goliath in chapter 17, you're going to see this heart theme. That God could not only not care care less about the outward appearance, He doesn't want to use any outward appearance that might be attractive to the world. Effectively, God's saying, Samuel, wrong lenses, brother. Take off man's spectacles and look with God's eyes. Don't look at his height, his physique. Forget the fact that he may be educated, well-traveled, because I look at the heart. And we're going to see the same thing happen as he goes through another six boys. All right, Abinadab, you're next. Jesse's a little nervous because he thought surely the oldest would get it. But, but, but there's still hope. He turns to his wife and says, I think he's it. I, I think Abinadab's it. He's always been our athletic one. Come on. God says, no, I've rejected him. Shema, I've rejected him. He takes his king card, stamps it 4F. No one is meeting God's standard here. Jesse and his wife are starting to get nervous. The elders are still trying to figure out what's going on here. Samuel asks, is this all? Literally, are the boys complete? And Jesse puts his hands in his pockets and he says, well, I mean, there there is the run of the litter, but I didn't think it important. For him to be here, he's he's down on the south pasture with the sheep. Get him. Get him now. We're not even going to sit down and eat until he is here. Everyone will wait. Now, I need to paint this picture here because you've got to realize by this time in preparation for the sacrifice, everyone has washed and bathed. Ceremonially clean. They've got their Sabbath vest on. They're probably wearing white. They put on the best steak. And everyone's standing around waiting. And, And I think it's more than just a few minutes. We don't know how long. But I imagine a couple of hours goes by. And then the doors open. And Pigpen walks in. You think I'm joking. He's been with the sheep for at least a week. He smells like sheep dip. He's dirty. Okay? He's already ruddy, so, you know, his kind of face is glowing a little bit. And verse 12 says, The Lord said, Arise. Anoint him. This is he. Does God use the weak things of the world to shame the strong? The things that are not to to shame the things that are. I mean, this couldn't be a better picture. That's him. Anoint him. Yes. Really? Yes. The red-headed runt, not the bronze Adonis. The little guy, the youngest. Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this one has the heart. This one has the heart. And right now we have to just stop and say, what does that mean? Does this mean he was a 
more tender inside. We know he was a musician, more pastoral because he's used to being with the sheep. Or is there something about a Godward heart that we can translate to today? Something special. Well, the text doesn't tell us here, but yet it screams it in so many ways and throughout the rest of the book. Where's he coming from? The sheepfolds. What is it about a shepherd that might be really good training time for raining time? Hmm? Well, think about it. Shepherds have a lot of time to think, right? They have a lot of time in silence and solitude. Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. David's not saying, if you wrote that, I don't love regulations. That's not what he's saying. He says, I love a window into the character of God. Shepherds must be humble. Why? Because in most parts of the world, they're considered the village idiot. No one's visiting the shepherd's booth on career day. There's a reason the youngest had this duty. Shepherds care for those who cannot care for themselves. Gary Richmond, in his book, All God's Creatures, relates how zookeepers consider taking care of the sheep as punishment. Unlike all the other exotic animals, leopard, rhino, gorillas, and snakes, the sheep seem to have one value, their willingness to subject themselves to eight hours of unsupervised children. This is what a shepherd does. Takes care of those who cannot take care of themselves. Everything else is a predator. They panic. Sometimes they will build a sheep pen with a low ceiling height because sheep have a tendency during thunderstorms to panic and climb on top of one another and smother one another. They not only need to be protected, they have to be moved along because they will destroy things themselves. They don't just trim the grass, they bite the grass and they pull it up. This is why you had the range wars in the late 1800s. If you don't move sheep along, they will destroy land. And they're very dirty. One author says that they are a giant Velcro strip. Because if they're lanolin, whatever you throw on them sticks. So think about this. How might a shepherd be developing a man after God's own heart? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Shepherds know their flock. They lead their flock. They feed their flock and they protect their flock. Here's the point. Being a shepherd requires that you live for another. And that kind of heart is exactly the opposite of Saul, isn't it? Who does Saul live for? Himself. Numero uno. David, on the other hand, lives for another. He's used to chasing wandering sheep. He's used to putting himself in danger. He's used to not complaining about not having a nice bed or the latest chariot. He 
is someone who is desperately dependent upon the Lord and lives for him. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will I win? Even in repentance. Against you and you alone have I sinned. We have also a glimpse in verse 16. Look at it. Behold, I've seen the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior. Circle this. One prudent in speech, a handsome man. And circle this. The Lord is with him. How do we know a man's heart? Christ says you listen to his mouth. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Bottom line. What we know of scripture and what will be exemplified throughout the rest of this book and certainly in the Psalms is a window into not a perfect man, but a man who is desperately dependent upon the Lord, who lives for Yahweh and not for himself. And we're going to see in the very next chapter who is willing to put it all on the line for the Lord's honor. Do you ever think about that? David and Goliath is not about slaying your giants. It's about a young boy who shows up on the line and says, how can you guys stand here when he is mocking God? And with no thought of his own safety, he is willing to do that because he trusts that if he is consumed with God's honor, to live as Christ, to die as gain, right? What's the worst they could do to him? Kill him. And he would be with the Lord. Here's another thing. A man after God's own heart was not consumed with his own, his looks, his stature, his strength. And clearly David is nothing special to look at. Oh, he's handsome, but but it's nothing compared to these other guys. And this just sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? Isaiah 53, he has no stately former majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him Mark chapter 6 verse 3 is this not the carpenter the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon and are his sisters not with us and they took offense at him Well, it culminates in verse 13. Samuel takes the horn of oil and anoints him in the midst of his brothers. And then watch this. The spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him from that day forward. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. God sees not as man sees. And you have this guy. There's nothing special to look at. And yet that's exactly who he's going to use. Why? Because God wouldn't have it any other way. God refuses to share His glory. And therefore, when God sent His own Son, literally His Messiah, His anointed One, we see in Isaiah that it is predicted that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Him because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Matthew chapter 3 And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting uh, lighting upon him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Clearly, David is a picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if we had nothing else but this text, 
it is clear that what God values is someone whose entire world, entire life is wrapped up, delighting in and desperately dependent upon his Savior. And it stands in such contradiction to Saul that as you see these two go side by side and Saul fall and David rise, you see that God chooses to bring glory to himself in keeping his own promises in ways that we would never, ever think of. But in ways where he gets all the glory. So let's apply this. I think we have to start out that God sees differently than man sees. You know, I, I love preaching chapel because there is so much of a deliberate nature in what you're studying. Man, you are studying to be shepherds. You're not, you're not just learning theology for theology's sake. You're not, even, you're not even learning for devotional sake. That's a big part of it. But the mantle is going to be laid upon you to care for the Lord's sheep. And we have a tendency in this day and age, especially with celebrity pastors and big churches and, and publishing deals and good night Facebook, okay? To have a tendency to put standards in our churches and on our people and what we value that are worldly, that are, I'm just going to say it, are ungodly. We become glory thieves by thinking like the world does. And so I think before we get into what does it mean to be a man or woman after God's own heart, which that's what we need to understand, we have to ask, how does God see? And do we need to emulate that a little bit? How does God see? Well, it's clear. God doesn't see as the world sees. He doesn't look at outward appearance. Let's get real specific. He doesn't look at experience many times. He doesn't look at natural giftings. He doesn't look at beauty. He doesn't look at popularity. He doesn't look at youth. He doesn't value the outward over the inward. And so I just want to share with you from a lot of mistakes I've made because I didn't have a class on this when I was in seminary. How do you choose who to pour into? How do you choose the right guy or gal for this particular ministry? And I can sum it up with just a saying we have at Metro, again, because we've done it wrong so many times, that if we have to send a guy to the moon, we would rather have a faithful farmer any day over a talented astronaut who's not faithful. It's, it's a weird way to think, but I promise you, you won't forget about that. If we have to send a guy to the moon, and basically that's what ministry is, because only God can make it happen, that when we look for a guy, we look for faithfulness. And sometimes that guy is an uneducated farmer, and we will step over the PhD in astrophysics because he's not faithful. God's looking for faithfulness. God's looking for someone who doesn't trust in their own talents and gifts. And this leaves us with, then what does it mean personally to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? Because this is what we want our churches filled with, right? Two words I'll leave you with. Devotion and dependence. Devotion and dependence. Let me leave you with one more illustration that I think will just kind of sink it. If ISIS was developing a dossier on you, 
and they had access to your, your checkbook, your bank accounts, your phone calls, your social media, everything, your conversations, what would they consider the driving force in your life? What would they consider the most important? And if Christianity is on there, how far down the list is it? How much of a threat would you be? Let me go a step further. If that's devotion, what about dependence? If I was to look at this dossier, what would you be trusting in for your security? I'm going to use that term. Because I want to stay out of the realm of Christianity. What would you be trusting in for your security? Would it be your 401k? Would it be your education? The job you have? The family you come from? Hey, we're in Texas. Would it be your Glock? Okay. Or would that dependence be upon the Lord? Would it show itself in prayer? Would I be able to look at this file and say, this guy logs in time in prayer. This gal physically gets on her knees before she crawls into bed at night. And then just kind of say something a little bit as she falls off to sleep. No, no. A man or a woman after God's own heart. This is what we could bank on because we see it in David. We've got enough writing in the Psalms. There is devotion, devotion and delight to his Lord. And there is a tremendous dependence upon him. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will I win? So, Father, with this just tidbit of 1 Samuel, I pray that you would give us such a heart and such a longing to emulate your servant David, but yet even more to emulate Jesus Christ who fulfilled devotion and dependence upon you better than anyone. Father, I pray that we would start to see as you see, not looking at the outward appearance, but looking at the heart, and in doing so we would cultivate that heart that that longs after you, that follows after you. We use the word trust so flippantly and so ambiguously. Lord, what we're really asking is that our trust in you would ultimately be an overflow or a result of our passion for you, our passion for your glory, being consumed with your honor and taking care of your sheep. I don't know how deep of a person David was. Clearly, he was devotionally deep, but intellectually, we'll have to wait till we get to heaven. But one thing we do know, he thought of you first in all that he did. He thought of those under his care, and he was willing to put it all on the line because he was a man after your own heart. Equip these young men and women. Encourage them. And do your bidding through them. Advance your kingdom through us, Lord. For we are unable to do it on our own. In Christ's name.